Off we go. Uh, August the 26th, 2018, lecture discussion number 34 on the book of Joel. And I got a letter here that I thought I would read. It is uh, applicable for the entire lecture today, which is quite handy. She sent it to me on the 18th. What is today? The 19th. So I got it last night, as a matter of fact. Uh, it is from Deborah from San Diego. I believe that's correct, Deborah. I hope you're from San Diego. I think you are. Uh, dear Pastor Cronister, she says, as always, I'm enjoying your series on Joel and all the tangential, tangential, ah, tangents, subjects you interweave into your sermons and lessons. Ah, my brain usually hurts after each sermon. I usually listen to each one two or three times. Now it's all grown for poor Deborah to get a full grasp on your material. I know I'm weird. But was before I found Cliffside. I'm the seven-year-old child, or seven-year, seven-year-old child, who went to my great aunt's house for my, for the giant family gatherings on Sunday afternoons. Who would head directly to my aunt's library back when old homes had a room dedicated floor to ceiling to books. I would look at the current National Geographic magazine and then select an encyclopedia to read. I would spend all my time reading. This is what people did before you all had phones. See? Yeah. My mom would never, my mom would come and yell at me. That's what moms do. Right? To go play with my cousins, I disobeyed and never left that sacred room until we went home. That is why I'm able to impress lots of people with useless trivia that they think I'm smarter than I really am. That's very good. I am currently preaching the gospel one Sunday a month at our local women's jail. I preach one hour each to two groups of prisoners. It ranges from two to 25 prisoners, depending on how many prisoners choose to give up their free time to attend church. So she goes on to talk about uh, how much time she has there. But here's what I wanted to get to today because it applies. I have, I have been preaching through the eight I am statements of Jesus. I figured the best way for the prisoners to get to know Jesus is to learn about what he said about himself. And she is absolutely correct about that. This coming Sunday, 8-19, that would be today, I will be preaching on the I am, the resurrection, and the life, which is, of course, Lazarus. I am intrigued to hear what you have to say about Lazarus's, Lazarus's, Lazari? Lazarus's, I think it's correct. Okay, maybe not. What you have to say about Lazarus' grave clothing or grave cloths. Is there any way you could give me the Reader's Digest edition of your sermon I liked? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> there is no such thing. <laughs> I wish there was. Everyone, uh, Deborah, wishes there was a Reader's Digest edition of my sermon highlights. I promise I won't disseminate it on the Internet. And, uh, Deborah, you're absolutely, you can, you can take anything that I do and put it anywhere you feel appropriate. Uh, and that, yeah, never mind. I just want to add it to my sermon and don't want to wait until the last moment. <laughs> and I'm very sorry, not really. If you don't have time, I completely understand. That's not the reason. <laughs> I will be pondering how on earth you're going to incorporate Lazarus into your current material, which is Joel. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I thought that was very funny. There's more to it if you want to read it. It's really cool. 
I just wanted to get that far because that's what I'm going to do today. Actually, before Deborah even wrote that to me, I had had this in place, as you might know from last week. Somehow, in this book of Joel series, we have found ourselves dealing with lunar and solar cycles. That's because of this lunar and solar system that God put in place and put into motion. That makes us also deal with uh, the speed of light, which, of course, sent us to the radiation continuum theory on the speed of light, something that we'll get back to. I think it's critically important to you to know, especially in this time of so much uh, fearer being directed towards the precepts, if you will, the truths of Genesis. The meanings of rest. God rests in the first week of Genesis, the, first, the creation weeks. What does he mean by that? How does he define rest? The sign of Jonah is incorporated there because that's where night and day were separated. And the sign of Jonah is three days and three nights. And thank you to Shannon for bringing that uh, up so that we could uh, place it in here where it belongs. The, the dividing evil from good is going on in the first week. The Ark of Jonah, I'm sorry, the Ark of Noah, I said that badly, didn't I? The Ark of Noah has to be discussed when we're talking about Joel. God's definitions, his definition, if you will, of blessing. And as uh, Debbie points out, Deborah, grave clothing comes to the fore. Lazarus, therefore, who was bound hand and foot. When I see binding in Scripture, what should I do? He is bound hand and foot. How did he get out of the grave? Christ had to call him out. Could he walk out? No, he can't move. He's bound hand and foot. How does he get out? Imagine how Christ got him out of the grave. And he's in grave clothing, of course. It's perfectly appropriate, but you'll figure out, I'm sure, why that applies to Christ. If I have the binding of Lazarus, who else in the Bible is described as bound? Well, Christ is, but who else? Satan is. And, of course, one of the most important dramatic theodicies in all of Scripture, the blotting out of Moses... Moses said, blot me out, do not blot out Israel. The divisibility of time, the absolute consciousness, uh, existence, and the lie deception of Satan. In other words, in Joel is pretty much everything and anything from everywhere as usual. And in my defense... Uh, with regard to all of these subjects, the sun and moon is the primary theme of Joel. He mentions it three times. He talks about what God is going to do with it in the tribulation. And so the investigation of it is critical to understanding uh, Joel. Sun and moon, the lights, particle light, time. So Joel cannot, in my view, be properly assessed without light and time being prominent which is why we have spent so much time on light and time. And ultimately, this leads to evil and good, darkness divided from light, separating sheep from goats, saved from unsaved, living from dead, as God defines living and he defines dead. And Joel contains all of those elements throughout the entire book of Joel. There's the valley of decision in Joel 3, 14 and 15. And that's the place of the trial of the tribulational, um, of the tribulational nations, the judgings of the nations. He sets up a courtroom 
if you will, except it's outside. It's the valley of decision. And he separates, divides the sheep from the goats. It's a trial and it's a serious trial. What happens to the goats? He's separating the living from the dead. The living go on into the millennium. The dead do not. That's day from night, good from evil. Sheep from goats, all of this separation, and that is on the great and awesome day of the Lord. And all who cry out to Jesus Christ on that day will be saved, and those who refuse will die. Face judgment and die as God defines death. And that, of course, brings us whoops, to the Lord's Prayer. Ugh. Too much material to deal with today. I had to play the banjo. I had to do the offertory. I have to arrange my advertising. Now, so I can't remember anything. So I'm barely operating today. That's a lot of a lot of burden for old people. Satan's. Uh, deception is in the Lord's Prayer. Important to know that. So is the, gra- the reason for the grave clothes of Christ, the blessing that God does. He blesses who he blesses and who he does not bless. Satan's, again, deception. The burial spices, therefore, and naturally the rest, God resting. That is in the Lord's Prayer. So it's probably the best place to begin this week, um, and that is Matthew 6. That's where we're going to do it. We could do... Um, Luke as well, but we'll just stay with Matthew 6 because it is the most recognizable. (coughs) But obviously we need to find out why Luke 11 and Matthew 6 do not uh, correspond in every word, because they do not. They, as usual, are additive. And perhaps you've heard of the recent effort to make amendments to the prayer of Christ. This is something Christ speaks out loud. Are you aware that there's a movement now to start taking things out of the Lord's Prayer? They're not happy with it. And specifically, it is the Pope of the Catholic Church who's not pleased with the Lord's Prayer. He thinks it's necessary to make adjustments. The Pope has found discomfort, apparently, with what is commonly referred to as the Sixth Petition. They have divided the Lord's Prayer in Matthew into six petitions. That's the one that says, and lead us not into temptation. So these, again, these are the spoken words of the creator of all things. So either the spoken words of the creator of all things confuses the Pope or the Pope finds them unacceptable. It's going to be one or the other. In either case, the sixth position, or I'm sorry, the sixth petition is uh, being revised, if not deleted. I won't be surprised if it's deleted entirely at some point. Last Sunday, a megachurch uh, seeker-sensitive pastor advised unhitching the entirety of the Old Testament. He finds the seven days of creation to be a myth. In his view, the Old Testament, and I quote, has been dismantled by academia. Which is the actual myth, because academia has not dismantled the creation account. They hate it. They loathe it. They despise it with every ounce of their being. But they certainly have not damaged it in any way. 
So I have a pastor who says, however, he has conceded that academia has overcome Scripture. And a more perfect example of Revelation 3.16 cannot be found. He is personifying exactly what Christ said would happen at the end of the age of the Gentiles. What's going on in Revelation 3.16 has all kinds of characteristics. One is that Christ is not inside of it, so it is a Christless organization. Two, it is a wash in money, and the people running it are extraordinarily wealthy. So you have, in this case, you have an extraordinarily or extremely wealthy man leading a church awash in money, and he declares the Bible to be dismantled by atheistic, monistic philosophies. That's what he's done. And again, perfect. He might as well just take Revelation 3.16 and use it as the motto of his church. And... Combine that, subsequent or immediately subsequent to that news, the Catholic Pope argues for the destruction of the sixth petition of the prayer of Christ. So I have the mega-rich church pastor, and mega-rich church pastor is what? A redundancy. It's always assumed. It's like... uh, unwise teenage boy. Extra words there. I also have the opulent Catholic Church. Incredibly wealthy institution throughout history. It's the wealth and the power that the Catholic Church has amassed is probably unprecedented. I think it is of any religious organization that has ever existed. So they have a shared interest here in diminishing Scripture. And I recommend that they consult and include the televangelist guy. Remember him? He fleeces his sheep to buy a $50 million jet after he's already got four or five of them. And how about the San Antonio guy? What can I say about him? What euphemism is appropriate that I can use uh, he drives a 350,000 black Ferrari or Lamborghini to church. I, I try to wrap my head around the process of the wealth that is accumulated by these men leading church organizations. Stuns me. And the, and the sermons that they preach are complete... It's rainbows and cotton candy and unicorns and teddy bears. It's all the same. You don't have to watch them for five minutes. It's just how to mow your grass, how to bake a potato. I don't know. It's all the same stuff over and over and over again. It is Christless, exactly what the Bible says it will be at the end of the age of the Gentile. We are rich and we have need of nothing. We have a 300 and $50,000 black sports car, foreign made. I don't need anything, is what he thinks. And Christ says to these men and women, you are naked. And I have no description to, for somebody who has a $350,000 black Lamborghini Probably got a $50 million jet, too. I have no description that uh, I can use for them. And that's not entirely true. I have a description. 
but I will leave it unsaid. Revelation 3.16, folks, we're in the midst of it. And you need to know that. And so, therefore, just look for it at all times, as I said earlier today. Just keep watching these things come, and they come with more frequently uh, frequency, and they come with more emphasis and more substance to them in the sense of their size, not in the sense of their argument. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 6. In the last days, perilous times will come, for men will love themselves having a form of godliness. In other words, they will look like they are godly men. They will look like an act like they have some form of Christ, but they do not. The implication is clear. They have nothing. And it says in First or Second Timothy, turn away from such people. Run. Throw chairs and run. For of this sort are those who uh, creep into households and make captives of gullible women. That's what Timothy said. And you look at these churches that operate this way. They are attacking the women. And they do it in a very subtle, clever, cunning fashion. And there's a verse that no one preaches on today. I wonder why that is. Second Timothy, well, I don't wonder at all, do I? Second Timothy 4, the time will come when they, and he's talking about the people trapped in these organizations, will not endure sound doctrine. They will turn away from the truth and turn aside to stories, fantasies, fables. And that, that time is now. It's come. You're in the middle of it. Your friends are in the middle of it. There are churches like this, what I just described, all over the city. And they're wealthy. They're making money. Am I, um, am I, um, what's the word I want? Envious of their money? I am not envious of their money. That should be obvious. Uh, I have never made a decision in my life I, that would, uh, I never chose the money. I don't believe I have. I think I'll be able to stand up there and say I never chose the money. I hope. See me later as I'm reflecting right now. I'll tell you this really quick story. I had a man offer me a job to go out into the Bush area of this state in order to um, set up these generation systems. So he was going to provide power to the um, towns that did not have major significant kilowatt capabilities, and he built these devices. And the state was funding him. He had a state grant, and he was going to send them out there. And I, my job was to be the superintendent of that operation. He was going to pay me to do that. And uh, I would have to go out into the bush area and install these systems, very complicated systems. Uh, but um, that was the plan. I could see immediately that that wasn't going to be a productive thing for me to do for number one number of reasons. Number one, it would separate me from the family. And I didn't think that was a very good idea. Number two, it was a high-pressure job with lots of money. And my crew, looking around to see if any of them are here today, they're not. But uh, I told them, I said, we'll go out here and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we were all starving framing carpenters. 
I had the electrical background, so that made me somebody of interest to him. But he would bring that whole crew with me, and I told them I'm not going to do it. I'm going to coach Little League. That's what I did. That guy screamed at me for an hour, therefore convincing me that I'm a genius. I've never regretted coaching Little League. Now, the boys might have. (laughs) I used to throw at them on purpose. Pretty sure. No, I didn't. But I got accused of it because the curveball didn't break like it used to when I was younger. But he was slow. Should have been able to get out of there. Now he hits his own kids. And, of course, I tell him you do that on purpose. And, of course, I'm right again. Anyway. These people that are taking, that are looking at at Revelation 3 where it says we are rich and have need of nothing and Christ calls them naked and vomits them out of his mouth. That should frighten them. It does not frighten them. Does not. Why not? Where is the fear of Jesus Christ? There is no fear. And he says, fear me. Don't fear the ones that can only kill the the body. He says, fear me. I am the judge of the soul. And we are in the time of Second Timothy 4. 2 Peter 2.18 For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the fresh flesh. They speak evil of things they do not understand. 2 Peter 2.12 In other words, they don't understand the sixth position, so they think it's wrong. They don't understand Genesis one. And so they think, or one all the way to two, three, and they, so they think it is academically destroyed. And they are Christless, and it is Christless nonsense that they speak designed to enrich themselves. Jesus Christ again stands outside of these places, Revelation 3.20. And he says, if anyone will hear my voice, I will save them. No one answers the door. That's telling you a lot of things. The implication is amazing. The implication is the church of the final age has very few, if any, of Saved people inside. Nobody opens the door when he knocks on it. They have earned their description of the vomit church. So, Matthew 6 also examines this issue. So, let's read it. I could start all the way at verse 5, so I will. And when you pray, you shall not be like the pretenders. It says hypocrites, but it's the pretenders. And I've been to many churches in my life where people have pretended. And God says, Christ says, when you pray, you shall not be like these people, the pretenders. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the street and they may be, that they may be seen by men. They are praying to be seen. Why is that? Ask why. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. That's God saying something not good about them. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. There's a definition of omniscience and omnipresence for you. In this manner, therefore, pray. This is God saying, in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, 
Glorified be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your earth, I'm sorry, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, some believe that that doxology does not belong. I think the amen illustrates that it does, because Christ is the Christ of the amen. The Lord's Prayer is contained within the context of Matthew 6.1. What is the context of the Lord's Prayer, therefore? Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Do not be like the pretenders, those who wear masks. The actual word is people that have a mask on. We can call them Hollywood, if you will. We have pretenders. We have Hollywood people in the churches. Don't be like them. He even says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men of fasting. I say to you, they have their reward. Is that good? It's not good. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your father who is in the secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I could go on and on there, but you see the context here. Don't be like the pretenders, the performers with their fake, sad Hollywood faces, the actors. Do not, Isaiah 8, 19 says, seek those who whisper and mutter, nor imitate the heathen with useless, repetitive words. They think they are heard. They are not heard. Do not be like them. This is God himself saying that. And in the nucleus of these rebukes and warnings from the I am, the Lord God Almighty says, in the manner, in this manner, therefore pray. So. No time at this time to even begin to address. These are the words of God. There are a thousand questions in verses 8 through 13. There are thousands of them. And all the way through to uh, verse uh, uh, 18. Uh, from 6 on. 6 1 to 6 8. The whole chapter. Thousands of questions. Can't do it today. Let's give you some quick examples. Which kingdom is he identified? He said, uh, your kingdom come. Which kingdom? Because there's five kingdoms. Is it the universal eternal kingdom? Is it the spiritual kingdom? Is it the Mount Sinai, Mosaic, Israel, or what's called the theocratic kingdom? Is it Christ's messianic kingdom? Or is it the mystery kingdom that is the church age? Which one of the five? You, you can decide, but you need to know because that's obviously one of the petitions, isn't it? Feel free to make a decision. Use your phones if you, ha- you find them helpful. Your phone's not going to be helpful. Just I'd warn you, but... You can use them. Do you think Google has any idea what the Lord's Prayer is about? No, it doesn't have any idea. They'll try to sell you something because they're listening to you right now. I made that comment to Lindsay earlier. If I said, I know everybody in here wants a Diet Coke, you will go home and get a Diet Coke ad on your phone within the next couple of days or trampoline, whatever I want. to. I can really, you know, get involved here. 
Your phone is listening to you at all times, whether it is on or off. And you should know that because you are the product, not the customer. They are selling you to the customer. You're the what? The old adage, when you sit down at a poker table and you don't see the sucker, who is it? That's right. Okay, get a mirror. But that kingdom, first thing you have to do, make a decision on that. And it's uh, again, it should be fun to see what advertising Google bombards you with when you're asking, which kingdom is it uh, that I'm interested in in Matthew 6? Which kingdom? Uh, and Google is listening to me, much to their dismay, because, uh, like I said, Google is always listening. And, and that is something that is not going to end well, as you know, because you have read Revelation, haven't you? I predict that Google does not own its operation very shortly. Either a government owns it or a kingdom owns it. Anyway, where am I now? Notice this. Your will be done. That's fantastic. God has will. Do you have will? God has will. Do you think he gave it to you? Just logically. And his will will be done. And manna, give us our day, our daily bread, manna. Debt, slavery, death, forgiveness. The evil one, because it says that. But deliver us from the evil one. That's Satan. And the sixth petition, the one the Pope is unable to comprehend. Lead us not into temptation. I will get a letter from somebody who says, how dare you say the Pope doesn't know something. Um, uh, I'll deal with it when it comes, but it is obvious to me. I don't need to be told that he doesn't know. I can see that he doesn't know. And I'm, I would root for him to know. I wish, uh, as Bill, Bill the Cow said, as you get older, you want everybody to be saved. You want everybody to be saved. There are none that you wish not to be saved. Lead us not into temptation is where in the Bible. Where do you go when I say to you, lead us not into temptation, where do you go? Where is the first example of temptation in the Bible? Everything goes to Genesis 3. You've heard me say it hundreds hundreds of times. I can't say it enough. The evil one is the tempter. We know that from Matthew 4, 3. It even says, deliver us from the evil one. But he has a tempter name. So I know that this is about Satan, and I know it's about being led into temptation. And that means Genesis 3. The woman being deceived, believing the lie of Satan, saw that the tree was good for food, thought that the tree was good for food would be better. Thought, believed the tree would make her wise, took of its fruit and ate. And the evil one had successfully beguiled her. Her desire to gain power was the vehicle. It's the bait, the mechanism that lured her, tempted her, convinced the woman that the lie of Satan was credible. In other words, she believed that Satan was right about something. What did she believe Satan was right about? And that's the discussion, isn't it? My point is, yea, a point. The sixth petition has its origin, its foundation it, Genesis 3, that's the first temptation. Therefore, the lie of Satan is prominent here, the lie of the evil one. 
And many people think that God is uh, the source of our temptation, and he leads us into temptation. He says, oh, there's Steve. Steve needs to be tempted today. I'll tie a rope around his neck and bring him into temptation. God does not do that, will not do that. He does not, will not entice us to sin, James 1.13. So discard any consideration that God is an agent, a conveyor, a conveyance, an inducer of sin. Get rid of that. God is never the author of, th- uh, of sin or a participant in evil. To assign him to that or to, to such is an act of evil itself. So get rid of that. I feel bad for the Pope. Really, I do. Because that's what he's doing there. He's trying to reword it because he thinks that it might mean that God is leading us to temptation. He does not see the Genesis 3 aspect of it at all. I don't believe Maybe he'll write me and we'll argue. Obviously, do not lead us unto temptation, but save us from the entrapment of Satan, the snare snare of Satan, the lie of the evil one. Obviously, these are to be evaluated as a unit. Those are the sixth petition. They are the same. They are discussing the same subject. And I know that if I were to believe, be deceived by the lie of Satan, that to do so would be my free will decision, my free will choosing. God did not facilitate it in any manner to keep repeating that. So lead us not into temptation as it applies to Satan's lie means that it applies to the discussion that Satan had with the woman as to her free will and her existence. Is she a robot or does she have existence? A robot can have the illusion of existence. I watched uh, something on the uh, television the other day where they did a, a study. They had a robot, and it was a cute little robot. It had a smiley little face, and they were told to, people were told to turn the robot off. And as they went to turn the robot off, the robot said, Please don't turn me off. I'm afraid of the dark. And 30% of the people did not turn the robot off. They were worried about the robot. They had empathy for the robot. Um, I found that fascinating. That's the lie of Satan, isn't it? Because Satan is saying to Eve, you're a robot. You're an automation. You don't have any free will. Which means you're expendable. You're not valuable. You're just an automation, an automaton. The value of the human being is significantly reduced if it has no free will or existence, which are, again, impossible in my view to separate. So lead us not unto temptation as it applies to the, the Satan's lie as to our existence and also Satan's lie as to the purity, the holiness, the goodness of God. See, that's what's happening here. And it seems that it's unnecessary because God would never lead us into temptation. So that can't be what's being said unless that's the purpose of the sentence. I hope some of that made sense. And lead us not. We are to pray that he leads us not. Is that going to be an answered prayer? Yeah. So you got one right. People say to me all the time, my prayers are never answered. Okay, lead me not into temptation. 
Pray that way. You got one. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. There's a couple more. You're a winner. Your job as, as a human being is to figure out what God's will is and pray for that. Does that make sense? And all of your prayers will be answered. Your will be done. An extremely important understanding. We are to pray that he leads us not, which is certain. He will not lead us. But if we fail, then what does he do? What's it say? Deliver us from the evil one. He saves us from the evil one, which is also certain. He will save us and we will never be lost. He loses none. He's really good at saving people. He doesn't, his hand doesn't slip out of your hand as he's pulling you out of the water. He hits everybody. He's very good at this. He's the absolute perfect expert salvation guy. Free will, existence, and eternal security are side by side as we should expect. Notice 2 Peter 2, 9 through 10. I've got to hush, hush, hustle here. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows that. That sounds like Joel 3, 7 through 17. It might to you, and that's good because it is exactly Joel 3, 7 through 17. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. What is it that the unjust, he calls them unbelievers. He says unbelieving is evil. Why is it evil? Because you're believing something that is a lie and you know it's a lie and you want it to be a lie and you you... Choose it anyway. I ask people, do you want God to be evil? And they tell me all the time, yes, I do. Why? Because I hate him. Why? See how you go, you sound like a three-year-old. But three-year-olds are pretty smart with that one word. If you can't answer why to a three-year-old... Time to get going. I hope you see Matthew 6.13 in the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Jesus Christ knows how to save his people. He is an expert at it. That seems silly and it is. It's a human way of framing it. But he knows how to save people. Do not assume that saving people is something that's easy to know. It is not easy to know. In order to to know how to save, one must be omniscient, infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, absolute goodness, holiness. That's what you have to be. Knowing the solution to sin, knowing the solution to save is the sole purview of God. No one else can do it but him. Why? How? What would make you think it's easy? A lot of people will tell you that they can save you. None can. They don't know how. He's the only one that knows how to save. The Lord God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Is something wrong? Is it Dave's fault? Good answer. What's that? Who may or may not exist. That's right. Are you happy? Okay. I tell the grandchildren, they ask me all the time, Grandpa, how are you doing? I tell them, I'm barely okay. And that is profound. I think you'll figure that out as time goes by. 
Only God knows how to save. Only God knows the solution. Only God can uh, uh, is able to institute the solution. None can know how to save. The extent of the scope is beyond everything but him. Only God knows how to save. Okay? So now we move to the grave clothes, grave clothed questions. Jesus Christ, the infinite God in the flesh, chooses willfully his will. It's his will. Your will be done. His will be done. That's our prayer. And we got it right because his will will always be done. He decides to include grave clothes into his crucifixion process. So we see that grave clothes and the crucifixion have a relationship. And the crucifixion, as you know, has a relationship to the creation week. Grave clothes are very important to him. And this is a mystery that we're going to have to investigate. And as is always a challenge, it's for us to solve the purposes. Why did he do this? What's he saying? He's teaching something. There's a profound truth here. What is God saying to us with a symbol that is grave clothes? Because it's a symbol. And we know about the contrast, don't we? Because who else had grave clothes? So let's put him on the board. Lazarus. How many Lazaruses are there? Lazarus. There's two of them. So once I bring up Lazarus, I have to bring up the other Lazarus and find out what both Lazaruses mean together as opposed to separate. So I have two Lazarus, but Lazarus also has grave. This is Christ. Christ has grave, grave clothes. Say that quickly. Lazarus has grave clothes. What's the obvious question? Thank you. What's the obvious question? What's the difference between Christ's grave clothes and Lazarus' grave clothes? Are they the same grave clothes or are they different grave clothes? Do they perform the same purpose for Lazarus as they do for Christ? What do you think? So we know about this contrasting event, Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, John 11, the grave clothes of Lazarus. John 20 gives us a comprehensive account of the grave clothes of Christ. Why does John, John spends a lot of time on the grave clothes of Christ? You ever notice that? He talks about them at length. He's the only one of the apostles that really does. Excuse me. Obviously, these two, again, are, are to be adjacent. It's not coincidental that John wrote about the grave clothes of Lazarus and the grave clothes of Christ. No happenstance in the word of God. Ignore those who protest otherwise. And remember, John's solitary intent. He's got one reason for writing his gospel. One reason. He's doing it on every word he says. What's his reason? When you read the Gospel of John, what's he trying to prove to you? That's the Holy Spirit as well. He's trying to prove to you that Jesus Christ is God. The Holy Spirit had John choose the astounding evidences that prove Jesus Christ is God. And one of those evidences is this 
grave clothes thing. Contrasted with these grave clothes. So let's repeat the easy questions from last week. I'll give you the easiest of the easiest questions right off the bat. As soon as you get this, we can shut the sermon down because we're done. Deborah will be mad, but I could stop right here. Ready? Psalm 1610. Here's what it says. I'll start at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. This is David. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you, God, will not leave my soul in Sheol. David knew that God would not leave his soul separated from his body. You will not do that. Why not? Got to know why not. Why don't, why aren't we just spirits from here on out? Body dead. Get rid of it. My case, it's a mess anyway. Let's just be a spirit and float around. <laughs> like a fish, yes. Why does he not do that? He doesn't do it. Why not? For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Christ is the Holy One. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. <coughs> the Holy One in this passage is assigned to Christ. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. Therefore, it's impossible for the Holy One to undergo decay of any kind. The Holy One is God Himself. Acts 13.35, quickly, because I already got hand signals telling me to go fast. I need one of those Bibles that has the little thingies in them so you can go a lot faster. You don't have to actually know where the book of Acts is. <laughs> Acts 13:35. Huh. I'll start back here. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption. So that is a sign to Christ as well, as well there. I have two situations. I have human beings and I have Christ. And I, Christ saw no corruption. I probably need to, uh, to, to add this really fast. Who can raise the Holy One? How much does the Holy One weigh? Who can get him out? How big is he? He's infinite. How much does it take to raise an infinite being? Who can raise the Holy One? How much power is required to raise the Holy One? God raised Him from the dead, Acts 13.30. But God raised Him from the dead. There it is. Can't miss it. This is an astonishing complex statement. The triune Godhead is here. The triune Godhead raised the Holy One from the dead. The Holy One is the second person of the triune Godhead. The Holy One is the infinite Creator God who raises Himself. John 1.3, John 2.19-22, John 10.17-18. through 18. All that's for the Internet. The point being, yea, another point. The raising of God by God is not simple. Talking about the triune Godhead here. I am arguing, in fact, that we can't even come close to knowing what happened. We can't understand it. How does God raise himself? 
Perhaps soon it will be necessary to spend more time on the magnitude required of God raising God from the dead. The triune nature of God is never to be taken lightly. Never think it's easy. Never speak of it in a anything but an awesome, reverent way. Through the, though the church today, the Laodicean church, routinely diminishes and disrespects the raising of Christ. They lower it as if Christ is inferior And I think they do it on purpose, and I think they do it with arrogance, because they can't possibly understand it. Anyway, for today, the body of the Holy One did not decay, because it cannot decay. So it did not decay. So now we have these easy questions, right? Why does he want grave clothes then? What's he need them for? What's the purpose? What was Joseph, who's a rich man of Arimathea, so there's hope for some of these megachurch pastors. It's kind of a joke. They might not think so. He's a rich man, and it's not easy for a rich man to be saved, right? Matthew 27, 57, he's a rich man of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, who's the teacher of Israel, what are they thinking? I don't have time to read it, but they are doing a lot of stuff. They gather the burial spices, they meet at the tomb, they get the body, the bound, they bound the body of Christ in grave clothes. They're the ones soaking the strips of linen in this adhesive resin. And while they're doing this, what, who's in front of them again? The Holy One. Also called the holy thing, he's called. So there he is, and they got resin, and there, and they got the fragrance or the masking element because of the overpowering stench that occurs from someone who is dead, especially a crucified person. That stench that rises from a dead body. Why are they doing it? Doesn't the teacher of Israel? Doesn't he know about Psalm sixteen ten? Never read it. He's got a body in front of him, and he's wrapping it. With resin, he got 100 pounds, it says, probably closer to 70 pounds, but we'll argue that later. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. Joseph of Arimathea is risking his life to do this. And he's got a lot of money. Don't they know Psalm 1610? If anyone knows Psalm 1610 in Israel at that time, who is it? Nicodemus. He's the teacher of Israel. Joseph and Nicodemus, again, risk everything to do something that seems completely unproductive. Wrapping the Holy One. They're placing their lives in grave peril. <laughs> Worked all 13 pages to get to that. <laughs> sorry about that. No, no, not sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you're still awake. That was really for you. Oh, you drink hot chocolate. That's working, huh? Okay, good. Make a note. Everyone has to drink hot, hot, hot chocolate for the rest of the, my career. I submit that Joseph and Nicodemus either deduced that Christ was the Holy One, which would be absolutely the right thing to do, of Psalm 1610, or they were told this by Christ. Listen, Christ may have told them, because there's this mystery of the behold at Luke 22:10, the man carrying a pitcher of water, the loosing of the donkey, John 12:14, Luke 19:30-35. Did Joseph and Nicodemus know that Christ's sinless body would not go to corruption? Did they know that? 
I think they did. I believe yes, which means they also had the same grasp of what the grave clothes meant as they should have. They had the totality of the death of Christ worked out. And if I'm correct, duh, then why wrap the body of Christ in grave clothes? Obviously, this is being done to contrast Christ with Lazarus. Lazarus' body decayed. The blood pooled. There was bloating, the gas, the stench, which is what? If I come onto a body that's bloated and the blood is all pooled and I had to, I saw my father, right? I understand the pooling of blood in a dead body. You don't forget it. You'll see me. Somebody will. If if that happens. But the bloating, the stench, as soon as you smell and you see that, you know that's a dead body. You don't confuse them. I'm always surprised that somebody is revived after they've been put in the morgue. How do you not recognize that? Especially professionals. So Lazarus had all of that, and he was bound hand and foot. Those who bound him were ordered to unwrap him. Isn't that interesting? The ones that bound him were ordered to unwrap him. Some disagree with me. Don't know why. I, I do know why. A decaying body, Lazarus' body, was wrapped, but a resurrected body was loosened. And the people that wrapped the dead body unwrapped the resurrected body. But again, to repeat, Lazarus died one more time. I don't think he was afraid. Imagine the impact on the ones who did this. This is John 12, 17 through 18. The guys that wrapped him, knowing he's dead, he's bloated, he smells, blood is pooled. He has the, you can tell the face is different, the body is different. They wrap a dead body. They know what they're doing. Now they're unwrapping a dead body that has been pulled out of the grave, that is bound hand and foot, and his head, face is wrapped. Now compare that event to Joseph and the rich rich man, Joseph the rich man, and Nicodemus the Pharisee. i got a rich man here, and I've got an exalted Pharisee. Two of the most improbable people that should be doing this, right? They're wrapping a body that had no signs, no proof of death. And they know it. They're doing it anyway, because they know they're supposed to. And they must have known why Christ had them do it. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, my favorite name in all of the Bible, is the other Mary. I mean, she goes through history known as the other Mary. Can't get better than that. I would love to be the other Steve. Just really appreciate that. She's uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They witnessed this. They're watching it. Matthew 27, 61. Luke 23, 55. Anyway... Remember, the women on Friday after the Passover Sabbath and after the Unleavened Bread Sabbath, I have two Sabbaths, but before the weekly Sabbath, which is Saturday, they prepare spices. They watch the spices being applied. They see the the linen being done. They're there. And they still prepare spices anyway. Why? Did they assume that Nicodemus and Joseph were idiots? They didn't do it right. We gotta go do it right. But they can't do it because they got Passover, unleavened bread. Then they get Friday. They can finally prepare and takes all day to prepare that stuff. Now we can't go Saturday because that's a Sabbath too. It says after the Sabbaths, your Bible probably will not say that. It'll just have Sabbath. 
But after the Sabbath, now they could go and wrap the body because it's going to stink. Except it isn't because this is the Holy One. They didn't know. Jesus proposed to have his body wrapped or purposed, I'm sorry, purposed to have his body wrapped for the sign of Jonah. He's doing it because of the three days and the three nights. There's three days and there's three nights and then there's the sun and the moon. The crucifixion week and the creation week are going to be the same. Christ is bringing the creation week to the crucifixion process and grave clothes is a very important part of that. And so after three days and three nights, Christ would raise himself. Christ would loose himself from death. Jesus came out of the tomb with the stone in place. Lazarus, we had to move the stone. Now, some will say, no, he didn't come out of the the grave with the stone in place. Because the angel of the Lord, it says, the angel of the Lord who looks like lightning. And when men saw them, saw him, they became like dead men. What's it look like to be some, if you saw somebody that looked like a dead man, what would you say, say he looked like? Is he prone? Christ has a way of knocking people over and they look like dead people. So an, an angel of the Lord, I want to know if it's the angel of the Lord, moved the stone and told everybody things. The Lazarus stone was ordered by Christ to be moved away. Men moved it. The stone was a barrier to Lazarus, John eleven thirty eight. With Christ, the stone was removed to provide evidence that he was not subject to the stone, nor the linen encasements or the bindings. The bindings could not hold him, nor could the stone. Lazarus' grave had the stench of death. Christ's grave did not. The first thing you would notice when you went into that grave is that it did not have that stench. Lazarus' grave clothes bore witness to stains of death. They would be all over those uh, grave clothes. The decaying process would be evident in the clothing. Christ's grave clothes bore witness that he was the Holy One, no corruption. You would go into those and find those linens and look at them for evidence of death. There would be none. In fact, he folded them up. Lazarus was recognizable by everyone who saw him. Mary thought Christ was the gardener. She was right about that. He's the second Adam. She had no idea who he was. His disciples did not know him until he showed his hands and his side. So we have this incredible contrast that we'll have to investigate. But you have everything you need to solve it. What is the purpose of the grave clothes? So, on the 9th of September, Deborah, I will finish this for you. 